Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation 10, 7 through 11. It's a message that a mighty angel has given John, and John has given to us. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make her stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And verse 11 says, And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Happy Sabbath, everyone. So glad to be with you today. It's really a blessing to be here. Uh, our topic today is why am I still a seven-day Adventist? And there's some practical considerations before we get started here. Because in the name is Seventh-day Adventist, and the Sabbath is a big part of what we do. And it's practical from the standpoint that we live in a culture where you have 70 diseases that are sleep-related. And so God, looking down to this time, gave us a Sabbath. Sabbath means rest. I was just telling the elders in the back, that I was sleepy, but I was so happy for a Sabbath day. So that's a practical reason right there that I celebrate being a Seventh-day Adventist. Another reason is that Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming back again so that you can be with me where I am. Now, somebody ought to be happy about that. You know, I'm not just talking, but Jesus said he's coming back for me. Make it personal. He's coming back for me. He's coming back for you. And that's important. I'm glad about that. I like... Uh, the fact that he loves me enough and he cares enough that he's not abandoned us, planet. He's not abandoned us, but he's coming back for us. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to speak to your people. Lord, you know the poor mouth that tries to speak your praise. We ask now that you would speak to us, Lord. Speak because your servants are listening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 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 You know, we must be about our Father's business. We have a 
prime directive. And so the preamble to the assignment is in Revelation 10. Uh, we have a warning message to give the world, as well as the only plausible exit strategy. If you think about it, if you think about what the smartest people on the planet are positing to us, you know, they're saying that they can download our, our, our mind, our memories, our consciousness into uh, a computer and we could exist in cyberspace. These are things that they are postulating. Um, someone said they could freeze us and unthaw us when they find cures for our disease, cryogenics. Another, another genius said we could live in space. But you know, it's very difficult to do that. You know, even the people in the best physical shape with these million dollar suits, they haven't been able to stay out there that very long without having health consequences. It's changing their DNA, and it's, it's, it's just not a very uh, plausible exit strategy. Living in space, how many of us can afford the suit? You know, how many of us are gonna make it into that, that thing? Um, so, existing in the internet, long life, existing because we find a cure for a disease and they unthaw sometime in the future, uh, living in space, if we don't, and the planet is running out of resources, so that's, that's not even a good option. The gospel is our only plausible exit strategy. The blood of Jesus you know, and the promise that he will transform us into the full statue of God, of Jesus. That's important. Salvation. Salvation by faith through grace. That's the only plausible exit strategy, church. The, the verse that we read today is, begins with, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. These days are after 1844, and thus they do not specify a measurable time period. The seventh angel's message coincides with the seventh trumpet. Now I want, I'm gonna implore you to pay attention. This is a thinking sermon, and so I want you to hang on to every word. It coincides with the seventh trumpet, that heralds or announces to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The messages of Revelation are for everybody on the planet. That the mystery of God is to be revealed. That is why we call it Revelation. It's an unveiling, and an unveiling. These are not cryptic messages. They are to be understood by us. And so it says... Uh, this is potent language that says this, that it is to be completed. The mystery of God is to be completed. Hence, we're talking about judgment. And so we as Seventh-day Adventists understand that. We understand this language. And if, it's, if it is to be completed, that means before it can be completed, it must be comprehended. And hence our conversation today. We want to understand this. And... Uh, if it's going to be completed and comprehended, that means we're going to have a second coming. Jesus is coming back for us. 
And so we can celebrate that. I think, I think I'm right about that. We should be able to celebrate his coming. And so it will be consummated. The seventh angel, the text says, shall begin to sound. That's the language. And so that means it's a process. What is it, church? It's a process. But it is a, a climatic point in earth's history. It's a climatic point in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And we do believe that there is a controversy. There's a challenge to the divine strategy of God. And so this is the real war of the worlds. You know, everything we, we've had on planet Earth has been minor when you think about that there was war in heaven. Think about that. We talk about peace in the valley, but scripture tells us that there was once war in heaven and the devil and his angels were cast out. And so the, the voices in heaven all proclaim, if you look at that text in Revelation 10, all of the voices in heaven are proclaiming, you know, that at this time they all proclaim that the mystery of God should be finished. The mystery of God should be finished. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. The followers of God on earth, that's us, are to proclaim that the mystery of God should be finished. And so we cooperate with the powers of heaven, with the powers of God, should be finished. And so we cooperate in everything just as the seven angels sounds that mystery, that the mystery of God should be finished. Should be finished. Should be finished. Which means it's not finished, but it should be finished. This is not merely just a statement of fact, but it's a command. It's a command. What is the mystery of God? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. The mystery of God, there are a lot of mysteries. But the biggest one is how he can turn sinners into saints. How can he transform me? You know, I know what I'm like. I know what I've done. Uh, and the fact that God has told the whole universe that it's going to produce a people with the character of his son. That's incredible. The full statue, you know, of the son of God. The fullness of of the Son of God, who is holy, righteous, just, and good. And so it's a plan of redemption as it relates to the last events of Earth's history. We have a big word in theology called eschatology, the last events of Earth's history. And so mystery, the, the Greek is mysterion. It means a secret. It does not mean something that cannot be understood or could not be understood but something that could be understood only by those who were initiated. That is, by those who had a right to know. Jesus told his disciples, he often told them this, that it was given unto them, to his followers, to his disciples, to the ones who he was teaching, it was given unto them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but it was not given to the multitudes. That's, Mark, that's Matthew 13, 11. Matthew 13, 11. Paul speaks of the resurrection as a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I just like that fact that we shall all be changed. 
One day I'm going to be something you ain't never seen before. We shall all be changed. I like that. Paul even talks about salvation itself as a mystery. Uh, go to Romans 16, 25. We're going to do just a couple of texts. Romans, 7, Romans 16, verse 25 and 26. I can't wait for you because we have a journey here. But now to him who's able to establish you, to establish you according to my gospel. It's according to the gospel that he establishes us and the preaching of Jesus Christ. There's no other name of the heaven whereby we might be saved according to the revelation of the mystery. So the, the mystery is going to be unveiled, revealed to us who walk and follow him, which has been kept secret for the long ages past. It's been a secret. It's been a mystery. But he's saying, I'm going to tell you what I meant when I said it the first time. But now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. What he's saying is that we're now living in the age of fulfillment. Now all that God has promised and told the prophets of all the ages past has been fulfilled. And we're living in that, that period where God is explaining the truths of Scripture that no one could explain until now. In Revelation, a mystery, in Revelation, in Revelation, a mystery is a fact whose interpretation is about to be made known. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. Further, the word mystery is a cryptic symbol about to be explained to all those who consent to keep and obey the things revealed in this book. Revelation 1.3, go there. Revelation 1.3. It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it for the time is near. I want to just help you connect the idea that you not only hear the words, but you heed the words. That word, that word heed is keep or obey. So that's a part of it. That's a part of it. In Revelation 17, 79, we are to keep the things that are written in the book. Revelation 17, 7 and 9. I hope you follow me. And the angel said to me, this is the angel talking, why do you wonder? Why do you wonder? And what he's saying is, have you wondered? Have you pondered this? Have you wondered? Have you wondered? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. And then in verse 9, he tells us, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. I'm not going to go further than that, but I just wanted to just say that if we read the scripture, he explains to us what he means. We don't have to be befuddled. He tells us what the mystery is. God declares this mystery to his servants, the prophets. 
The declaration and exposition of the mystery of God has always been the burden of God's true servants, the prophets. And the biggest mystery to begin with was creation. How God was able to speak, and it was. He commanded and it stood fast. Then we have the mystery of Jesus incarnating, you know, God as a baby. You know, how did he do that? And then we have the Shekinah glory um, in the sanctuary. Think about that. God sitting on a box in a tent in the desert. And then think about the mountain, Mount Sinai on fire. You go over there right now, the top of the mountain is black because God sat on a mountain one day and he was on fire. These are mysteries. We have the worldwide flood that is challenged. Mystery. Jesus dying and resurrection. The resurrection is a mystery. The ascension and him promising to come back. These are mysteries. But God says all of the mysteries are going to be wrapped up and finished because he's going to show himself. I like that. That our God is going to show himself. And so we're commissioned to tell the world. Did you get it or did you miss it? All the Bible addresses these mysteries. God declares the mystery to his servants. And it's always been our burden. We his followers. Jesus taught from the law and the prophets. God doesn't do anything on earth without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. I believe that. And we are commissioned, each and every one of us, to tell the world. My question at this juncture is, are you telling somebody, your neighbor, your friend? After the voice of the seven angels sounds that the mystery of God should be finished, the same mystery that the prophets declared, John hears the voice of Jesus, who has already proclaimed that time should be no more, or no more shall be, or there should be no more delay. He's referring to the 2300 days of Daniel's prophecy. And Jesus tells John to play a part in the vision. We know this is the voice of Jesus. We talked about this in that first sermon. Because it comes from heaven. But not only that. He's speaking. It says he's speaking to John again. After telling him not to write what the seven thunders had uttered. Jesus tells John to go and take the little book which is open in his hand. I like that. And he's opening the hand of him who's standing on the sea, upon the sea and the earth. Or rather he told him to seal up the book that Daniel had sealed. And so Jesus opens the book now for John. I like that. The book is open. So I'm a Seventh-day Adventist now because the book is open. It's unveiled. The book is open. John then says, give me the book. He's, 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 he's emphatic. Like Isaiah, he says, here am I. Please send me. He expresses his desire, not just a choice, but a desire to understand the book and it is implied for the purpose of sharing its contents and its message. This prophecy, we believe, has its fulfillment on those who participated in preaching during this pre-Advent period, 
pre-Advent movement from 1840 to 1844. They were correct in their computation of the time element of Daniel 8.14, but were mistaken as to what was to take place. They believed Jesus was coming again. Instead of him merely entering another phase of his high priestly ministry, the message of the near advent was precious and because it energized and motivated and informed not only their preaching, but you live a certain way when you really believe that Jesus is coming. When you really believe that Jesus is coming soon, you live a certain way. And so it changed their emphasis, their lifestyle. The angel, rather, Jesus told John to take the book, and then he next said, eat it up. That's, that's a funny word, isn't it, for a book? He said, devour the book. This means to comprehend the prophecy of Daniel fully and thoroughly, to extract all the meaning and implication of the book as our bodies extract and use the nutrition it obtains from food. The food we digest. Eat it up. To completely masticate Daniel's time prophecy. Break it down. Understand it. Apply it. Teach it. Preach it. Eat it up. Eat it up describes the experience of the pre-Adventism movement believers as they came to understand more fully the meaning of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12. And specifically their relationship to the true fulfillment of the 2300-year prophecy. Nobody in all of biblical theological history understood the meaning of this prophecy until 1844. And so it is unveiled. The early Adventists were the ones who God chose to reveal the meaning. Just like Jesus, they learned obedience through the things that they suffered. And so Jesus tells John that the prophecy of the little book would make his belly bitter. God's messages to his servants, to his people, have often been a mixture of sweetness and bitterness. For they reveal both his love and his justice, his mercy and his justice, his judgment. His grace and his strange work are act of getting rid of the sin problem. It's quite a, it's quite a strategy to do that. that. The whole sanctuary system in the wilderness dealt with the adjudication of the sin problem. After sacrificing every day, the evening and morning oblations, after sacrificing lambs for the sins, you still, after a whole year of sacrifices, you still had a day of atonement. It was hard to get rid of sin. Hard. God had to die. Jesus had to come and shed his blood. And so his covenant to prepare, to prepare for him a people as a special treasure unto himself, it took divine strategy and divine strength to meet the satanic challenge to his authority and lordship. When we look at Ezekiel's experience in Ezekiel 3.3, Ezekiel said the word of God that he had to eat was as sweet as honey in his mouth. But as he spoke the word to Israel, 
it was harder than flint. In Jeremiah 5.14, God tells Jeremiah, Behold, I am making the words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and this word will consume them. John the Baptist had a harsh and cutting message mixed with the imminent appearance of the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Israel was a green tree, meaning it was vibrant, it was luxurious, it was fertile. But John talked about taking an axe to the root of the tree. And so God could plant other vines and plants. Prophets of God have experienced both the ecstasy of divine vision and the bitterness of delivering messages of rebuke to men. It is not always a kind word. Not always a comforting word. And why should we expect it to be? We are sinners. We are low-down, raunchy sinners. And we need correction, reproof, rebuke. And we need a word that is profitable for doctrine and for instruction in righteousness. We are moving contrary to the will of God. And so the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder both bone and marrow, in other words, reform hurts. Moving is not fun. Change takes pain, at least some pain. And so I say here to preacher, and so the word initially is sweet as honey, but after that bitterness. In a specific sense, the experience that came to John here in vision mirrors that of the Advent believers in the years 1840 to 1844. When these believers first heard the message of the imminent second coming of Jesus, it was indeed to them as sweet as honey. But when Christ did not come as or when they expected, their experience was indeed bitter. Only the disciples' disappointment when Christ died on the cross was worse. Many left Christianity, as did some after the crucifixion. We often do not handle disappointment well, do we? And so that's why we need to study God's word more. Are you studying, church? The Bible teaches that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have to study. When the storms of life are raging, we need an anchor that's steadfast and sure while the billows roll. I like to say roar. An anchor to secure our souls. God's word is unchanging. God's word hidden in our hearts will keep us when all around us, others are losing their grip on reality. Others are fainting because of fear. And we have the sure word of God. The message is often sweet as honey, but our experience, life is difficult. Our experience often is bitter. We need the sweet message of hope to carry us and buoy our spirits when our lives become unmanageable and turbulent. I want you to take note of John's experience. Often, 
we don't want to know more. We know God wings at ignorance, and so we think like the ostrich that we can avoid danger and responsibility because we are not informed. There is a principle in the Bible called avoidance of opportunity to learn the truth and avoidance of opportunity to minister to the needs of others. We call it sins of omission. Not transgression, not breaking the commandments, not sins of commission, but sins of omission. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. James 4, 17, for the record. And so when Jesus tells John to go and take the book, he doesn't have to tell John twice. John says, give me the little book. That should be our attitude. I want to know and experience everything I can as it concerns the word of God. I want to experience everything I can experience. I want the book. Explain it to me. He's talking to the angel, to Jesus. John says he took the book and he ate it up. I like his attitude. He ate it up. I'm going to give you some text that inform our attitude and posture about God's word of truth. Psalms 42, 1. Turn there with me. Psalms 42, 1. You're turning there rapidly, avidly. Psalms 42, 1. The first four verses there. As the deer pants, longs for the water brooks, so my soul longs for or pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Are you thirsting, church? When shall I come and appear before God or see the face of God? I want to see the invisible God. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? That's a taunt. These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in possession to the house of God. I was moving slowly with them. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. In verse 7, deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls. All thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. It's talking about having a symbiotic relationship with God. Deep unto deep calls to me. And so we have a responsibility, church. We are accountable for what we don't know, but had an opportunity to learn. But through negligence or apathy or intentional neglect or avoidance, did not learn. There are conditions we must meet in order to receive this fuller revelation and understanding of God's word and God's will. Although it is through God that we move and breathe and have our being and the goodness of God leads us to repentance, there is an intentional exercise of our wills to appropriate the knowledge and grace necessary to live a successful or rather effective Christian life. 
God is living in us and with us, but we must surrender our will to him. Jesus tells us that blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you notice, the filling had to do with our desire, not just a choice, but a desire, a hunger, a thirst. They shall be filled. Matthew 5, 6. We have to cultivate appetites, don't we? For spiritual things. Only those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is our choice, our desire. God will never force us. And if you remember that we have two natures, we're born with a nature that's carnal and and we, we inherit. God says he gives every man a measure of faith. There's a spiritual nature. The one you feed is the one that wins. You know, uh, if you're not, if you're not uh, feeding your spiritual nature, you can't expect success when the challenges of life come. You know, that, that oatmeal ain't going to help you, you know, when you step out the house and Satan is waiting. You, you have to have spiritual uh, appetite. We have to cultivate that. Only those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so we must ask, seek, and knock. He said, ask and shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Matthew 7, 7. Ask. God says, you shall, you shall find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. Now, Are you searching, church? Are you seeking? Are you knocking? The text is implying that virtue is seeking God with all our hearts. That's the virtue. He will not disappoint you. He never disappoints faith. So you can have success today, right now. Paul says that the Christians in Berea were more noble, when one translation says more virtuous, than the Christians in Thessalonica. And he gave two reasons. Number one, they received the word with all readiness. This is very important. They received the word with all readiness of mind. That just means they had teachable spirits. And number two, and this is something we may neglect, but they searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. That's Acts 17 and 11. They followed Isaiah's formula in Isaiah 28, 9 and 10. Whom shall God teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept and line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And so Paul continues the demarcation between Christians and those who are complacent, indolent, and not seriously searching the scriptures. And Christians who are totally dedicated to Christ, who zealously study the scripture to know all they can of the things that God wants them to know and do. And Paul uses this language. He used the language, the metaphor of milk versus meat to both the church at Corinth 
Corinth, and the Hebrews. And Christians everywhere in all time, in all ages. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Paul says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. You know, he's basically saying you can't handle the truth. And up until now, you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. That's really strong language to call someone carnal. Uh, but that's Paul. For whereas there is among you envy, and he gives his reasons. He said there's envy and strife and divisions. And then he asked the question, are you not carnal? You have to agree with me. You, you, you're carnal. And walk as men. And then in the, to the Hebrews and the rest of us, he says in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, of whom Jesus, our high priest, we have many things to say. I want to tell you all about this Jesus. But they're hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. He's saying you should have already had this lesson and passed it. Are you become, are you, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat? He's saying you're not ready for this, what I have to teach now. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe, a baby. And, you know, I, I'm being a man. I hate when someone would, you know, say you're being childish. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. He's saying the lesson I have is for those who are want to be mature. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to, to discern both good and evil. The last text I'm going to give you today to help inform us about our responsibility to improve what God has done for us and given us in his word through opportunities to know and understand his will. That's a run on sentence, but his will for our life in these last days of earth's history. Turn, if you will, your Bibles to John 7, 17. John 7, 17, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Jesus gives us our last principle on gaining and understanding biblical truth, whether it is prophecy or doctrine. John 7, 17, actually, uh, let's look at that whole passage Stop at verse 19. He who speaks, from verse 18 now, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So he's speaking to some adversaries in the crowd, and he goes back to Moses. 
Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. We're, we're speaking for the invisible God. I want you to put your marker there and go to First Peter. I mean, Second Peter. Second Peter, I'm just going to read a few texts there. Say man when you have it. Second Peter, first chapter, beginning at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter is saying, I saw Jesus with my own eyes. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance, such an utterance or voice as this was made to him, was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. So Peter is giving his testimony that he not only saw Jesus, but he heard the Father speak. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from on high, made from heaven, when we were with him in the holy mountain. And then this is how he characterizes it. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. And we have an even more sure prophetic word than what I experienced in the mountain when I heard God speak and when I was with Jesus. The prophetic word is more sure. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Put in your notes, if, you, if you're taking notes, Second uh, Peter 2, that whole chapter. But it's no private interpretation. Go back to John 7, 17. Go back to John 7, 17. If any man would do God's will, he shall know of the doctrine. Are you, are you willing to do God's will? Have you made up your mind to do God's will? Whether it be of God, you shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He's saying that the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. It will be unveiled. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. He makes it seem that even knowing God's will is a part of our purification. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet, no, yet none of you keepeth the law? And why go ye about to kill me? This is a journey that ends in eternity. What is it in, church? In eternity. You start and you keep going and following the Lamb wherever He leads you. That's Revelation 14, 4. We, we hear His voice and we follow Him 
wherever he leads us. King Solomon tells us in Proverbs 4.18, but the path of the just is as the shining light or as the dawn that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. As we walk with God, he shines more light on our path. Now the last verse in Revelation 10, verse 11. The last verse in Revelation 10, 11. Remember John snatches the book of Daniel out of Jesus' hand. He eats it up. He understands that something happens at the end of the 2300 years. And he believed Jesus would come the second time. When Jesus does not come, it is a bitter disappointment. Then Jesus speaks again. The text reads, and he said unto me, put yourself in the text. He said unto me, Jesus is talking to us, to each of us individually, personally. He's talking to the remnant church. Thou, or we must prophesy again. Jesus is coming again. So we are to keep telling, keep warning, keep preparing others for that eventuality. Prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Christ is the same angel from verse 1 and 9 in Revelation 10. The key word, the key word in Jesus' command to John is, and to us, is must. We must, we must, it's not optional. We must prophesy again. Although things have not worked out like we thought it would, although our experiences have been bitter, God still wants to use us, although we failed him in the past. He wants to use us. It's a divine imperative, an emphatic proposition. You must, we must prophesy again. We are under strong obligation to deliver a further message. No one else has this, has this responsibility but us. It's on us. Jesus is telling John and us that a great work remains to be done, and if we don't do it, it won't get done. We must go forth and proclaim the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12. And, it's a, and in particular, the third angel's message of Revelation 14, 9 through 12. The next word in Jesus' command to us through John is before. Before many peoples. It can also be rendered about many peoples because it concerns everybody on planet Earth and everybody needs to hear this. The message is for everybody. Many peoples. The message is for the entire world. Many peoples, nations, tongues, kings, kindred, unto all that dwell on the earth. As the full meaning of the third angel's message dawned upon the early Adventists, even before they completely understood the seventh-day Sabbath, this happened before we were called seventh-day Adventists. These early believers followed Jesus wherever he led them. They proved that indeed the path of the justice as a shining light that shineth more and more into the perfect day. They seized upon this opportunity for globalization which spawned the most dynamic and widespread programs and endeavors of worldwide evangelization that Christian history has seen. 
that Christian history has seen. Seventh-day Adventists have taken the Global Commission literally better than anyone else to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now, there are only two world religious groups, only two, Catholics, which mean worldwide. It means universal, actually. And us, Seventh-day Adventists. But that other group are disqualified because the gospel commission given by Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, tells us to teach the world to serve, to observe all of the things whatsoever I've commanded you. God's true church is universal, but it also teaches the whole Bible, all of Scripture. That other group only teaches some of what Jesus taught. A good portion of what they teach, they made up. They claim ecclesiastical authority to change God's law and words and to exhort and exalt the traditions of the church fathers over biblical authority. Jesus was crucified for that, blasphemy. Now, what does it really mean to be a Seventh-day Adventist? And, I mean, we believe a day for a year. We need prophetic guidance. Every church claims to be the true church. I've talked to Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Pentecostals and Catholics, dot, dot, dot. But what are our claims as Seventh-day Adventists, and what do we have to back them up? And that's a good question, and it deserves an equally good answer. Lord, help me to get it straight. Help me, Holy Ghost. We'll just read one of our main claims. We are the only church that claims its prophetic roots in Revelation chapter 10. Other churches claim prophetic roots, and that's fine for them, but we are the only church that claims that its very existence is due to the prophecies of Revelation 10. This is distinguishing and distinctive. We're the only church to go to Revelation 12 to find our prophetic messenger. And number three, we're the only church on the face of this planet that goes to Revelation 14 to get its prophetic message and mission. I want to just say a few things about those three distinguishing marks. God's true church, I believe that all three of these are very important, extremely important. And they address the question for me as to why I am still a Seventh-day Adventist. It's worth thinking about these days. In the King James Version, halfway through that little uh, chapter of, of Revelation 10, those 11 verses, it says that time should be no longer. In some of the other contemporary translations, it says that there should be no more delay. They're all talking about the same, the same thing, and they are all correct. They're all true, that there should be no more time. There's a grave in Vermont with a marker pointing to a gravestone that says William Miller. It has two important facts of the man's life, February 15th, 1782, 
his date of birth, but did you realize that William Miller was born only 16 years before 1798, when the final epoch began for the time of the end? He died December 20th, 1849, five years after the Great Disappointment. Then they did something at his funeral that epitomizes the man, his life, his epitaph. And what's more appropriate could they do until 2300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed? Daniel 8.14. That was his message. It didn't embarrass William Miller, though he was mocked, derided, ridiculed by the clergy, the editorial writers, and the crowd generally, and generally by society at large in, that, in his day. Like Paul, he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also like Paul, he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But unlike Peter, who wilted under close scrutiny as he warmed himself by the enemy's fire, Peter denied his Lord with cursing. And I don't want to be too hard on Peter. A lot of pressure there. But in this detail, William Miller was more like Paul and Peter after he was converted. It was on October 22nd, 1844, that at 62 years of age, literally worn out, and in those days, 62 was closer to 75 than 63. Hard life, no real medicine then, no health care. You get sick, you died most of the time. Only the strong survived. Good genes was all that could save you. But for the grace of God, in the mid-1800s, going to the doctor was nearly always sure death. If you want to guarantee it, go see the doctor. No concept of bacteria or viruses, no sterile technique or environment. William Miller, 62 years of age, literally worn out, partially blind, as a metaphor, like Job, body covered with balls from head to foot, eyesight nearly gone. He was fading fast, only 62, burned out, nearly done. Almost through. He sat on the porch of his house, and all day long, people would go by. The Millerites and the people of the community in Lowhampton, Vermont, the people would, would go by and say, today's the day, and he would say, yes, today's the day. The sun was fading, was making its path from east to west just like every other day, and the shadows were growing longer, and the faces of those Millerites were growing longer. And finally, it's dark, and they went into the, their homes little groups of them to sing and to pray. They were waiting for Jesus to come. He hadn't come yet. Somebody probably had the bright idea that, hey, he didn't, call, he didn't call this the midnight cry for nothing. Of course, that comes from the parable of the ten bridesmaids of Matthew 25. It was at midnight that the bridegroom shows up. And somebody says, he's even going to fulfill that specific point. That minor point in the parable prophecy. We're almost done today. That minor point in the parable prophecy. It was really a prophetic prophecy. And you know there's a difference between prophetic prophecies and prophecy. And so they girded up their lawns anew. And then Father Clock in New England chimed midnight. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, simply 
had not come. How did William Miller and the rest get there? Miller, of course, was a native of Lowhampton, renamed Jess Hampton today. He had preachers, Baptist preachers on both sides of his family. He went to the war, he went to the war of 1812, was kind of discouraged with conventional Christianity and had adopted the religious philosophy called deism. Yeah, they, they believe in a creator God, but he's like a watchmaker, a clockmaker. He creates a watch or a clock and winds it up and sets it up and gets it going and then sets the time and he puts it on the mantle and goes off to other things and other parts of the universe. I'm so glad we have a personal God who cares for us, who loves us. He's concerned. He's doing everything he can to save each of us. But no personal God in deism. He's not concerned, and so he was disillusioned. Miller, that is. But on September 11, 1814, there was a battle, a battle of Clapsburg, in which 4,000 American troops faced 14,000 British troops. While the end of that battle was foreordained, and yet unaccountably, incredibly, the British had more ships and more guns on Lake Champlain at, than the Americans did, 14,000 to 4,000 on the ground, and yet the British lost to the Americans. Sometimes it's not the odds. Sometimes it's our belief system. This is belief in your cause. Sometimes it's just trust in God. Sometimes it's not strategy in soldiers and armaments and weapons. Sometimes it's faith. Anyway, that just blows William Miller's mind. He's but a youth, maybe as old as David was when he faced Goliath. Someone says 16 going on 17. Just 16 going on 17. We'll be 17 in five months. Shortly after that, he goes back to Lowhampton. He says, I'm going to study this Bible once more. He spent two, months, two years from 1816 to 1818. He's 19 now. He was interested in prophecy generally. He was especially interested in time prophecy in particular. He discovered that the idea of a contemporary millennium of great peace, which some of the preachers were talking about and heralding, wasn't taught in scripture, had no foundation. He decided... He took all of the commentaries and the concordance and his Bible and he studied. He started with Genesis 1-1 and two years later came to Revelation 22-21. And after reading the last verse, he came to an earth-shaking conviction that Jesus Christ was about to come to redeem and reap the earth. He, according to the prophecies, decided that Jesus was coming and 25 years, about 1843, and he would perhaps later adjust it, and he would later adjust it to 1844 when he realized that there was no year zero. BC 1 is followed by AD 1, and so he had to make that little adjustment of a year. And so these two years, I think, would be analogous um, to, to, to a master's degree. It so surprised him, it astonished him that he went back and spent the next four years from 1818 to 1822 restudying his conclusions 
And as a result, he finished with that. He, with his typical methodical analytical mind, he formulated a list of 20 points and he reaffirmed his earlier conclusion. And he continued to study. This may have been his PhD those four years. He's 23 now. Now he's going around and visiting the clergymen, trying to see if he could interest them in the fact that the Lord is coming. Are you trying to interest people in the fact that the Lord is coming? And that, and he said in 25 years at that time, or less, they said, no, you got the right date, all right, but it's the great millennium of peace. Well, they were right that he got the right date, but they were wrong about the event just as Miller turned out to be wrong. And it was on Saturday morning, August 13th of 1831, Miller was sitting at his house and it was as if God came very close and said, told him to go and tell the world. Go and tell it to the world. Are you telling the world, church? Have you taken up the mantle? Go and tell the world is our mantra and our commission. Go and tell the world. You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.